I'm Fiona Davis and you're listening to Beyond the Numbers. Welcome folks to another episode of Beyond the Numbers. I'm Chris Thompson and on this occasion I'm joined by Fiona Davis. Fiona is quite the authority when it comes to retail, fashion and brands. During her career, she's worked at Harvey Nichols, Tesco, BHS, Wallace Early Learning Centre and Ann Summers. She's also been a course leader at the University of Westminster for students working towards a Masters in Fashion Business Management. Fiona then shared all her knowledge and acumen from her career by writing her book, A Profitable Love Affair, How to Build and Sustain a Strong Brand. Today, she runs her own consultancy, The Brand Inspiration Company, helping businesses to connect with their customers and grow their brand. I'm sure you'll take a lot from our chat about what it takes to succeed in retail and today's cutthroat, high street environment. Hi, Fiona. Thank you so much for joining me. The pleasure is mine. That's very kind of you to say, Chris. Now, I've noticed something about my own personal consumption habits that makes me think I am a problem and part of the problem. I've noticed that many, many years ago, I didn't really particularly like shopping. So I do my shopping. I go out very quickly, knew kind of what I wanted. It was very functional. I bought it and then I got as quickly as I could away from the high street, the shopping centre, whatever it was, got home and continued with life as is. And then obviously the internet happened and that was like a dream to a very functional shopper such as me who was very impatient waiting for other people to buy things. And I love that because I could then do all Christmas shopping online, I could purchase everything online. And it was easy, it was fast, it was convenient, I got what I needed, it was effective, it arrived quite quickly, and sometimes it was even gift-wrapped or I could send it on as a gift uh, more recently. So I am kind of probably part of the problem because I've now moved away from London, I live in West Oxfordshire, and I now look around the town in which I live in and bemoan the fact that we are starting to see empty stores uh, and maybe an increasingly empty high street. What, with your background in retail, Fiona, what should I do to now correct my wayward ways and help save the high street? Chris, I don't think it's up to you to save the high street. It's up to those who um, are conscious of brands and uh, retailers and people who are open to looking at doing things differently. So it's really easy for people to assume, and there's been a lot of conversation about the internet being the death knell of the high street, and it's actually not true, because we're still only buying 20% of our purchases online. So we have to look a little bit more closely at that. And while the trend increases for online shopping, it isn't what's caused the problem at all. In my view, what's causing the problem for those brands and those retailers who are struggling or indeed have disappeared is that they haven't kept pace with what the customer wants and it's not just about the functional aspects of shopping in fact it's far more far more about uh, the emotional aspects and the whole experience of shopping it's a mu- much more about the rounded experience and um, actually the other aspects that is very very often cited as being the reason for retailers having challenges are things like rents and rates and the weather and the economy, for goodness sake even Brexit, and all of those things of course can make life difficult for businesses. But the corollary to that is that in the same marketplace and in exactly the same environment there are businesses that are thriving. So what I make it my business to do is actually to focus on what is the cocktail, what is the mix of the businesses that are thriving, rather than focusing on what isn't working. And actually, if many of the businesses who are stuck 
or who've gone beyond being stuck had really kept sight of their customer and really understood what it is that their customer wants and will need, they wouldn't be in that position. So not your problem to solve. So actually the likes of BHS, House of Fraser, Austin Reed, Maplin, Prezzo, Toys R Us, oh I don't mind that one, the list goes on. What you're actually saying therefore is it's not consumers or their choices that's the issue, it's the lack of customer end-to-end -end service that might have been the problem in some form or way. Well, the issue is the customer, because it is what we as customers want that those retail or brands are not responding to. But even if we look at things, say, from a sector perspective, you mentioned Toys R Us. Yes. So, and you've got young children. Indeed. I understand. <laughs> so that will, be, that will be a sector that you're well-versed in. Um, in my background, um, I was part of a big transformation for Early Learning Centre, which is something I'm very proud of and very sad to see that brand having lulled. However, if you look at the, uh, on the one hand, the, the, the struggles of Toys R Us, and in contrast, the, uh, the growth and exciting um, traction that the entertainer has achieved in the same marketplace, facing the same, many, many of the same issues, therein lies the contrast. And there's a great example of a business with pretty much many of the same issues and the same opportunities having not done well versus one that's thriving, growing and buying brands like Early Learning Centre to re-energise them. What did Toys R Us get wrong versus the entertainer getting right, in your opinion? I'd very much prefer to focus on what businesses Get right. right. Yeah, okay. Um, one, because it actually gives us more, more of a focus for what is possible and yeah. where the potential is, because I'm very much a, a cup half full person. So what did the entertainer, do you feel, get right or is getting right? My observation is um, there's an element, of course, of um, capitalising on a marketplace where actually there is less competition for them. Right, okay. So yeah. let's be practical about that. However... They are also very committed, um, uh, family-led te family team uh, who are clear about what they stand for, why they're doing what they're doing, and are consistent in doing that. Um, I don't know a great deal of detail about how they work and how they operate, but that's my observation. They're also um, operating in a very different way to Toys R Us. Uh, so, for example, um, they have definitely enhanced and focused very strongly on their online proposition, yes, but they've also built and created um, an increasing uh, portfolio of small, more, smaller and more intimate stores that I imagine more fun to play and shop in. I've sort of forgotten about that because my children are a bit older, <laughs> but you might know more about that than I do. What do you think? I think kids more than any adult love and experience so if you can go in and they can actually play with things and be creative with things then as you say i think that's a fantastic thing it also puts pressure on a parent to then purchase whatever it is they're playing with well interestingly they have such a good time with it absolutely and interestingly when i was at early learning center it's a while ago now but we were very conscious that here was a very strong brand it had a real reason to exist all about learning through play but play first not about going to school play being at the forefront and in this country we do tend to focus on children going to school rather earlier than actually in the evidence suggests is helpful and that more play would be more helpful but that's a slightly different topic um, but in the turnaround of ELC um, we focused on really bringing that brand to life so to become rather serious it become more like a library, to be honest, than a Play Store. So one of the aspects that we decided to do, and I have to say the finance director was not entirely convinced of this idea that I put forward. Indeed, yeah. And um, uh, <laughs> the idea was that we would close the store on a Tuesday morning for exactly the reason you describe, to avoid parents being under pressure. Right, okay. So actually the store was literally a Play Store. So parents who had um, some older children would be able to drop their kids at school and bring the little ones into the early learning play store, 
play with the toys without any expectation of buying them. Brilliant. Yeah. And build a community in a local environment um, at a time when mums and dads and carers can actually feel quite isolated at home with young children. So the, 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 the concept works on a whole host of levels from a community, community perspective and experiential perspective, genuinely adding value to kids' lives. Actually, commercially it also worked because sales did go up the rest of the week, but parents were able to make informed choices, considered choices about what they were going to buy their children for their birthdays and Christmas because they've actually seen them playing with it yeah. and could see what they were going to truly enjoy rather than something they were going to unpack and frankly be more interested in the box than the toy. Yeah, that's a common issue, yes. <laughs> that latter one, yeah. I mean, I think uh, it's interesting that as a as a parent, I think, um, and it's related, Disney, Pixar, they're creating films that appeal as much to parents as they are to kids. And I wonder if there's an element of that with some of the shops and some of the toys and games, etc., like if you see your kid and you you in yourself envisage that actually that's a really fun thing to play with or do with the kids, then yeah, it's absolutely the purchaser is the one with the cash, which is the parent really. I would agree. You know, with with where where children are involved, it, it's it's really capturing that emotion on 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 different levels. And we we used to spend a lot of time thinking about that. You know, the proposition for early learning centres enriching the lives of children. Yeah. In order to enrich the lives of children, we also want to bring those magical moments in a parent's life um, to, to the forefront because that's what it's about. It's about the connection between, at that age, between the, the parent and the child, um, very often before they've actually developed the, the, the play skills to engage with other kids. And that's a really important bonding experience and one that rewards the parent as well as the child. What you're describing is, is knowing and understanding your customer. And in this case, the customer is at two levels. There's the child and the parent. So we would literally walk around the store as an adult and then get down on our hands and knees to see the child from a kid's eye view. Yeah. Um, so physically, psychologically and emotionally to tap, in, to, to tap into that. Because if you look at things from an adult downwards... Um, it's you know, it's a very different perspective and unlikely to be quite as fun for someone who's three. <laughs> Indeed, and what's really fascinating, you say that, is sort of seeing things from a child's perspective. I think of some stories, some of the films, films that I've personally enjoyed the most are ones shot almost from a child's unique perspective. I think of E.T., it's going back to the 80s here, I'm showing my age, uh, and Empire of the Sun, two Steven Spielberg films, very much yeah. shot from the perspective of a child, which is complete unique take yeah. on what's going on around them and the environment around them. So interesting that you had to and get actually, to that level. Without being too philosophical here, um, that sort of element of uh, continuing to be playful, continuing to have an open mind, continuing to be curious, continuing to feel that there's stuff to learn as an adult at whatever age, is a very healthy mindset. Yeah. And so actually giving adults that opportunity whether or not it's about a connection with a child is, is, is a, you know, in my view, a lovely thing to do. And, and actually, in many ways, my sense is that's a lot of what shopping and experiential stuff on the high street at its best is. It's a shame you say that your, your local high street isn't quite as vibrant as, as, as it, it might be, but mine really is. I'm starting to notice a few closures, that's what, that's yes, what I'm that's getting to, which to is see, a it? little bit concerning. Suddenly seeing a few empty stores and, and you're like, oh, yes. it's even hitting here. And we have free parking yes. as well. So, But on the other hand, that might mean that something even more interesting is coming in its place. I hope so. So to me, there's 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 a lot of um, what we're fearful of and and you know genuinely concerned of that's about things changing, and maybe therefore this is a bad thing. In some instances, or look to look at that in, in another way, this could be a very good thing because this is about refreshment. This is about change. My local high street, the Northcote Road, there are constant changes. 
there's always something new happening. Now, on the one hand, you say, well, that's the death of that. On the other hand, you say that's the rebirth of, of something entirely different. I personally think we're going through one of the biggest changes in in the perspective of the customer, if you like, and therefore the high street and therefore the shopping experience that, well, I've ever seen in my lifetime, the pace of change is faster than ever. Um, and we're very clear about what we as customers want from a functional and a sort of <laughs> effectiveness perspective, like you've described your shopping experience. But we're also very good at sort of working out, well, actually, you know, I might want to buy loo roll like you describe your shopping, or I might want to buy cleaning products. But actually, if I'm treating myself to some cosmetics, for example, I might want to go and engage with that experience and really sort of touch and feel and see if that's for me rather than simply buying a commodity. Yeah. And I, I think that as customers, we've become very familiar with working that out, usually not consciously, because most decisions are not made consciously, they're made emotionally, um, but that's actually what we're doing. We're working out what, what, what are the first-hand experiences we want to have and what do we want to delegate to someone else or to something else like the machine in front of you where I can just press send and it arrives remarkably quickly. I, I feel guilty <laughs> confessing to that, but it happened. <laughs> Alas. So what you're saying is where a lot have gone maybe a little wayward is the customer experience, the end-to-end -end experience. What do you feel, given your experience, you've worked Tesco, Nichols, Wallace, you work with Ann Summers. What, what, what do you, which brands do you feel are getting it particularly right at the moment, and why? The brands I'm probably most excited about, if if I'm honest, are brands that many people won't have heard of, and they're being ignited by the passions of uh, founders who are spotting a gap in the marketplace where many of us who are more experienced retailers allegedly have not spotted it. Fascinating. And so um, to cite a brand that actually probably more people will have heard of rather than not, but it gives a good example here, is a brand called Seraphine. Now Seraphine, if you are pregnant or if you have been pregnant in the last 10 years, 5-10 years, you've probably noticed Seraphine. Otherwise you probably haven't because it's not on your radar. But Seraphine is a maternity brand that was created by um, a female founder, a lady called Cecile Renault. She had no retail experience before she set up Seraphine. She also was not pregnant, so she wasn't responding to her own um, needs. needs yeah. But she spotted a gap and she went for it. Now, actually, the received wisdom would have been, well, you know, between mother care and whoever else, actually that maternity market is well served. But she saw that market in an entirely different way. And actually, um, the, 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 the results are, are, are there now evident. She has a chain of shops, not too many, so she hasn't expanded into um, too much physical space. Uh, she's created a very strong brand, a very strong proposition, with um, uh, an impressive celebrity following, including um, actually a lady who wouldn't consider herself a celebrity, but um, the, the Duchess of Cambridge, probably one of her most esteemed customers. And, um, and, and, and the rest is history. Now, with the work that I do, I have the privilege of um, spotting, working with, supporting, being the cheerleader of, um, a number of female founders, most of whom have not got retail or buying experience, but they have uh, an, a natural and learnt um, ability to understand a marketplace and respond to it. And, um, you know, it would be unfair to cite them because they might be embarrassed by my celebrating them okay. on your podcast. Um, oh, but, I wish you could. Well, you know, if, if you push me, then, then, <laughs> then, then I could. Later. But, but I'm particularly excited about those because I also think not only um, am I there cheerleading those women doing something different, which in itself is something to be celebrated, but as customers, I think we're all seeking something that 
is is less mass, is less available everywhere, is something a little bit different, has been developed with um, with a perspective, with a sense of purpose, with a sense of values, whether it's sustainability or whatever their story is, they are creating a, a proposition that responds to our emotional and practical needs and therefore very exciting. And I think that there are increasingly that we are gravitating towards more um, discrete and specialised propositions rather than large monolithic environments that tend to sell what everybody else is selling. And if we then look at the corollary of the department store, even in that sector there are department stores that are doing wonderfully and others that are not. Well, what's the difference between those? So Harvey Nichols, for example, um, cited uh, very strong results in the last couple of weeks mm. on the back of having invested significantly in their brand, in their environment, in their proposition. It's a compelling environment to go into. Look, you know, I'm not made of money. I don't spend endless amounts in Harvey Nichols. But every time I walk through the door there, I find that a vibrant and energising environment to be in. I sometimes might have a beauty treatment, I might have a little snack, I might have my hair cut. I rarely go out without having bought something. The reason I go is not to buy something. The reason I go is for the experience and the feeling of I'm having a treat today. And that's what Harvey Nichols does for me. They stand for something. Liberty, on the other hand, stands for many of those things, but other things as well in terms of their heritage, in terms of their quirkiness, in terms of finding products and ideas and notions and thoughts that are not available elsewhere. If we then contrast that with the House of Fraser or the Debenhams, can we actually think about why we would walk through their door in contrast to what I've just described? The brands they have are available everywhere. Debenhams do have their designers for Debenhams, but they've become rather lost, without a sense of purpose, without a strong point of view. And the experience is quite sad, actually. Yeah. Quite sad, quite austere. Yeah. Whereas on the other hand, John Lewis, also in a big, uh, a big space, a, a huge business, can't be compared with Harvey Nichols, of course. They are innovating. They are creating exclusivity within their range. They are um, experimenting with ideas, some of which will fly for them, others of which won't. But for a big, long, established retail brand with, with the heritage they have, they are showing many others how it's done, in my view. The fact they've taken a dip in terms of their performance in some areas is only inevitable. You have to in order to, you have to consolidate. Like, to like, a, re like a reset, wasn't like it? Like a reset. Yeah. yeah. I know it's so much there. I could, we could talk about this all day. <laughs> um, and we'll come on to the smaller players that you mentioned shortly and founders and founders' purpose. That's fascinating. We'll come on to that shortly. One thing I sort of noted as you were talking is there's one big, sort of quite big brand that we sort of have a love-hate affair with, if it can be described as that. And I'm talking about M&S. I don't personally really go and shop at M&S much. I might have got a bit of food from there in the past. I don't personally get clothes from there. And yet, there's always a small part of the heart that drops a bit when I turn on the news or... or listen to the radio in the car and M&S latest results come out and you hear clothes sales are down, food sales are stagnant or rising mildly, but they're outdone by whatever's going on elsewhere. What is that about? Why do I, I mean, I'm asking you to answer a question on my behalf in some ways. Why do I have this why sort of, care? yeah, why do, why do I care about M&S yet? I don't really shop there very much. It's almost like it's an institution. I don't feel the need or the power, I don't feel pulled in by M&S to actually shop there much. I think many of us feel very similarly. What is that about? I have that emotional kind of, oh, 
wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if they could willing them to do better? If they could do better, yeah. With we're all we're all there, we're all cheering them on, and yet we're disappointed. So why are we disappointed? This is a big story, I think. It's huge, um, isn't it? M and S. It's not only because it's a. It's a big, ongoing. Big it's business. like decades. This problem. So when I was a little girl, there weren't. There wasn't the competition. There wasn't other places to buy affordable clothes um, on the high street. There was no Zara. Yeah. There was no Mango. There was no the 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 uh, the brands that have become the Arcadia brands uh, existed. So uh, Dorothy Perkins and Wallace and and those brands they they were there. Um, but in terms of a mid market affordable fashion option yeah. available and accessible for most people, M&S was it. Interestingly though, when they had that high ground, they were not arrogant. They kept in contact with their customer. They were constantly innovating and creating things that we were all thinking, how did they think of that? Right. Very often in food actually. Yeah. How did they why did they package little little bread rolls rather than full size bread rolls? <laughs> what clever so and so thought of that? Aren't they brilliant? They kept that that real connection with that customer. They were with their customer, they were walking with their customer, and they were thinking ahead of their customer. They were listening and they were responding. In whatever way they were doing it, I don't know how they were doing it, but they were doing it. Because right. the evidence was there to such an extent that if you know when I was a little bit older and I was shopping for my own family, if I went shopping on a Saturday and they'd run out of bread in M&S, I would think, oh, it's my fault, I'm stupid, I came late. Yeah, right. Whereas if I went to Tesco, <laughs> I would want to lynch the store manager because I would think that his his replenishment was terrible, you know, whether it was his responsibility was or not. Stocking bad, yeah. Um, so there you have the strength of the brand. Now, the antithesis of that, very sadly, is that as competition has increased and the majority of women who would have shopped at M&S now shop at Zara, the point at which Zara overtook M&S in terms of um, propensity to spend as a woman of an age that is a core customer from M&S big, big problem. Mm. The point at which you go into the lingerie area, because even if one didn't shop uh, women's wear, we were all lingerie customers. And so you go in and you want to find your bra size or you want to find some white socks for your child and they don't have the size. These are functional problems. Big, yeah. Big functional problems that show a very sort of very, show very fundamental problems with their supply chain and a lack of focus. And at the same time, as all of this um, vibrant and interesting choice came, let's talk about choice from a customer's view rather than competition from the retailer's view because it's so much more relevant because that's what we respond to as a customer. M&S started to sort of lose their focus on the customer and it appears become much more internalized they started to sort of in some way think they had the answers and uh, become internally focused trying to sort of perhaps fight the problem from within rather than look outside which right. is very my experience in larger businesses that tends to be what happens when a business is under pressure Right. Rather than reaching out and looking for something different and looking at what's going on out there, we become internally focused because that's what we as human beings do. And in essence, I think there's a lot of that that has gone on at M&S. They've stopped listening, haven't really been listening. doesn't mean that they're not doing acres of research. I'm sure they are. But doing customer research and actually interpreting it Actioning and it. acting on it mm -hmm. are very different things. And the sad consequence of all of this is that very often we look at a product that is of a quality that um, is not good enough for M&S. Um, an assortment of, if we're looking at clothing, for example, because the food is still better than 
clothing, which Indeed. You know, is yeah. is a sad uh, thing to mention too. But if we look at clothing, it, it, it's a confusing offer. So reading the, 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 the trail of comments after the um, announcement of Joel McDonald leaving M&S from, from, from customers and other stakeholders, nobody quite knows whether M&S is for them. And that's equally the same whether you're a maturer woman or, or, or a younger woman, let alone the men who aren't commenting. <laughs> because like you, Chris, you've found somewhere else to shop, <laughs> unless your wife is sort of a proponent of M&S probably, which the chances are she's not. And she's not. No. So it's sad. It's really sad. But we are all still rooting for them. We'd, we'd love them to win because they are they are part of our heritage. If you were in charge of MS, say I, I go, there's there's the chief exec job tomorrow, Fiona. Where would you start? They certainly could benefit from having a woman at the helm. Right. Um, it doesn't need to be me. Your reason being? I don't know for a fact, but I'd be very surprised whether there was enough diversity on the MS board to really be walking in the customer's shoes and listening to them. So in a world where 60% of the retail population is female, 80 to 90% of the purchase decisions are either made or heavily influenced by the female in the household but only 10% of board places are held by women. It's not the only problem that M&S face by any means, but I, I think that would be a great move forward to have more of, more of a diversity and more of uh, people who can actually walk in their customers' shoes uh, on the M&S board. In terms of what those people would do, male or female, there's a, a huge need to cut through what I... I'm certain is an enormously political environment where it becomes very difficult to make decisions and very diff difficult to cut through to what are the things that really matter. And that's an enormous task, but it has to be led from the top. It has to be led by a brave leader. It has to be led by somebody who is prepared to themselves make mistakes and be called out for those mistakes. And it's be it, it's vital for it to be led by someone who is actually prepared to consider that they're not always liked yeah. um, and they're not going to be liked by everybody. Yeah. It's, it's a tough job, but a, a job worth doing. It's interesting because you mentioned, you know, you suspect it's what, 10% at sort of board level might be female. I can't speak for everyone, but if I look at the purchase decisions in my own household, I think it's the other way around in terms of I probably only make 10% of all purchases in our household. And of those, are you are you influencing those 10%? <laughs> well, that's debatable. <laughs> I'd say there's maybe a bit of a negotiation on those 10% that I'm, I'm enacting in. I mean, mother cares, mother. Right, mother yeah, yeah. go on, please. You know, I don't want to sound as though I'm entirely a raving feminist, but... Um, there's a clue in the name of Mother Care, and there are no women on that board. And if you not one, not one. I didn't know that. And if you contrast their success in maternity wear with Seraphine, the ability to walk in—we don't have to be our customer to walk in their shoes, but we have to have empathy and insight and be able to understand what their lives are like on a day-to-day -day basis in order to create brands and propositions that fulfill those. And to me, that's vital. And what tends to happen when businesses uh, lose, their, lose their way, lose their joie de vivre, or lose their mojo, as I would describe it, is people tend to focus on efficiencies mm -hmm. and reducing costs and probably reducing headcount. So back to M&S, um, we've seen a significant reduction of people on the shop floor to help us and a significant reduction in people who want to engage with us, who are feeling good about their jobs, who themselves are feeling valued. You can see it, you can feel it in those environments. It's evident in, in the grocers as well. Even my beloved local Waitrose, really? I do not feel that those people are really 
um, living the experience of the of the of the John Lewis partnership. Sadly, but that is a very small local store. They're challenged by the huge throughput. But I suppose my point is that with any of these brands, unless people Unless there's a, a sense of purpose, a sense of reason to exist, however big or small you are, and unless that is understood and um, supported by and engaged by customers, but also colleagues, it falls flat on its face where it really matters where the customer interacts with it. Because any retailer or any brand is only good as good as the last experience they had. And if they've gone in, if people have gone into a, a physical environment because they're choosing that rather than the online press the button, deliver, send, arrive tomorrow, they're doing it for that reason. They're doing it because actually there's a social experience. And the antithesis of things aren't going so well, so therefore we reduce costs, so therefore we reduce headcount. Therefore, very often we reduce morale alongside You're it. You just destroy the experience. You destroy the experience, yeah. Yeah. and that goes, away. and then that becomes a law of diminishing returns, and and things spiral in the wrong direction as opposed to in the right direction. Well, it's only my view. No, it's, I think I think you're spot on. It's it's tragic to listen to. Going back to mother care, I can actually remember where I used to live when my children were younger. Uh, they opened a, a huge store in this sort of retail park section. It only survived about six to eight months. I remember going in there and from a man's perspective going, gosh, this is all very functional. It's sort of everything was just sort of stacked on shelves, huge shelves. And it was almost like you could just take it out, purchase it, and off you go. But I wasn't really the typical buyer in there. Uh, probably didn't really, you know, didn't really understand it at the time. But actually, that was completely wrong. And no wonder the store only lasted six to eight months. Because it was soulless. Indeed. It was soulless. It had no heart, just at the point where it's all about heart. It, it, it did feel very... When I, when I had my, um, my synthetic daughter, almost. and this was a while ago, because she's grown up, she'll yeah. be pleased to hear me say she's a grown up, um, <laughs> but when I had her, um, there were certain things that I needed the day after she arrived, and my husband potted straight into the mother care in Cambridge. Yeah. My daughter was born at the Rosie in Addenbrook, and the woman, she may have literally put her arm around his shoulder. If she didn't, that's how he felt. Right. He was going in to ask, um, ask for things that he's probably a bit embarrassed about, didn't know anything about, um, had some kind of list, didn't know what any of it meant, and he needed help. Yeah. And that's exactly what he got. Now, I, I, I think there's an element of that soul having been lost um, and I gather even um, even more practically that uh, in one of those initial concepts the fixtures were too close together to be able to get a double buggy through. On the level of uh, does it make my heart sing and do I feel that my baby's going to be nurtured in this environment and if I don't know what I'm doing can I sort of pluck up the courage to ask someone without feeling stupid actually you know it was sort of failing on a number of, of counts which is very sad and again to, like we did with Toys R Us and uh, The Entertainer, if we contrast Mothercare not just with a maternity brand, but with a thriving children's wear brand, because this isn't, this isn't the children's wear market that's struggling. This is Mothercare that's struggling. Indeed. Jojo Mamon Baby yeah. is thriving. What's she, what's she doing so brilliantly? She understands her customers. She understands her customers. She cares about them as people. She yeah. cares about her staff as people. Yeah. People know who she is. Mm. Yeah. You go into the store, they they refer to her by name. She now, is the store. Yeah. That's that sort of there is an issue with what happens when a business gets so big, you know, that the founder no longer can you know, all of those transition things. But that's where the strength of the brand, the values and what the proposition stands for is so vital to have encapsulated that it isn't dependent on one individual. Now, you wrote a book called A Profitable Love Affair, which I had a good read of many months ago. <laughs> uh, it's a few years ago now that you wrote it. 2015, it's about I think. time that I updated it. <laughs> no, no, of the, it's some full of, of the examples are a little bit sort It's of full of, of date, great insights, full of great insights. Can't <laughs> knock it. Don't knock it. Um, 
and obviously you're talking about a brand and building a brand and it was interesting to me reading it how the brand covers almost everything and I think what you were talking about earlier is you were talking about how you go to Waitrose and you know it's a small Waitrose store but the staff aren't necessarily engaged in delivering the experience for whatever reason and I noticed reading the book you very much start with the founder the leader and almost their call to action uh, and I was sort of thinking as you described that purpose purpose is a huge thing I noticed that just kept getting repeated left right and center everywhere purpose are people purpose driven do you do you want to expand a little bit more on purpose and, and good examples of purpose that you've come yeah. across with clients or in I retail? I think it's even more important today than it's ever been, yeah. the notion of purpose. Yeah. And the reason I cite that is that, for me, it's always been central. I've often had to kind of bang the drum about it a little bit. Yeah. The difference now is the people who are banging the drum are the millennial customers. They are demanding that of us. They are choosing, actively choosing, or actively rejecting brands that do not live up to their senses, values, and purpose, which is really quite a big shift. So there was a time when we kind of knew this was the right thing to do, to really understand these things, but there might be different levels of importance applied to this around the board table. Right, yeah. That wouldn't be unusual. In my view, if that happens today, it's at the peril of the business. Because the customer is demanding this loud and clear, and because the routes to access the information through social media have never been more instant. So there was a time not so long ago where a business could behave a little bit differently on the inside than it did on the outside. Not possible And the today. customer wouldn't necessarily know about it. Even someone working for them wouldn't know about it until they walked through the door. I know that because I've experienced it. But it's not possible anymore. Whether you're looking at a business and you want to consider working there, whether you're considering being a customer, we can very smartly, very easily find out what's going on and make a judgment about whether we like what they stand for or not. And frankly, people are not prepared to look that closely. So whatever they see is what they understand. Now, the contrast to that is if we look at businesses where people really have a reason to go to work and love what they're doing, not because they are a buyer, not because they're an accountant, not because they feel fulfilled in doing whatever it might be, but because the, they are part of something that goes over and above their functional expertise and which they feel part of. Yeah. So what might that look like? So when we were working... So like a... a sorry to interrupt you. Like a, a purpose that is greater than the individual. Greater that, than the individual. Right. That's, that's what I was trying to get definitely, to. Yeah. Definitely greater than the individual. You're right. And, and greater than just the business, yes. really. Yes. So this is a business that is there to do more than make a profit. Something that helps society in some formal way. You tell, you tell a, a, a younger person, or actually most of us, if we're really honest, that they're there to deliver value to shareholders. It's not a very good reason to get up in the morning. You know, it's not a compelling reason to get up in the morning. But it would have been the case that that would have been described as one of the more, you know, rational and important and bored dynamics and the brand people might have been talking about purpose that has fundamentally changed and for me I have self-selected working in or with businesses where there was an open mind to recognizing the value that this kind of perspective has so an early learning center when we really understood that the, the core values of the business were as strong as ever but the relevance of the way in which they were being created, described and portrayed to the customer through product, through behaviour, through communication, through the store experience was no longer quite right. Nor was Mothercare quite right in the same kind of way because as customers we've shifted from wanting to see a retailer as the expert to wanting to see them as an equal partner. We want to see them as someone who is, they know their stuff but they're not patronising us 
They know their stuff, they've got their expertise, I've got mine. I know my baby better than mother care does, but mother care know their stuff and therefore I trust them and therefore I relate to them because there's an, an empathetic relationship there. So the way we described early learning centre was about enriching the lives of children. Now that's a really compelling reason to get up in the morning rather than feeling like you're going into a library store. Um, fearlessly unleashing the sexual confidence of women is quite a compelling reason to go that's to work. That's huge, yes. <laughs> huge topic at the time. Um, and so these emotional sort of drivers for um, uh, you know moments that money can't buy in early learning centre in in Wallace, um, giving giving the brand and women pride in shopping there again because it, what was clear there was that the core roots of the Wallace brand was actually before Zara or, or anyone else was taking um, the essence of what was going on on the catwalk on into high street fashion. Wallace was doing that from the Paris catwalks. They were there way before anyone else was doing it. Mm. But there was a sort of conflict, a sort of an uncertainty, a lack of confidence in the brand. A lot of this is about confidence, confident to be, to say, we stand for these emotional things and they matter to us and they matter to people and we understand that. And uh, so that Wallace had lost, its, had lost its confidence and to give them back their confidence, to make them excited and proud about this quite expressive customer who was happy to dress for herself and to dress up and and to be sort of quite vibrant in the way that she expressed herself through clothes rather than being a rather sort of contained um, dressed in black formal kind of fashionista which was de rigueur at the time right. and so it's understanding really going back to the roots of understanding that customer and making it worthwhile to be part of that tribe as a customer, that to sort of feel, yeah, that, that sort of feels a bit like me, I, I can sort of buy into that. Yeah. Um, and of course now what's so important is the, the sort of the ethics and the sustainability um, and the environmental aspects of the brand, which in the last few years I think have become almost a given. They're almost a hygiene factor. You know, yeah. actually, if we're not w at least working on them and we're not making progress in that area, well, you know, frankly, that's a huge problem. So there isn't a choice not to do that. So whereas okay. brands were leading with that, I think they have to lead with something that is way more than that, but they have to do that too. Yeah, It's okay. become something that, you know, it's like, have, like going to Tesco and making sure that the trolleys are dry. You know, so it's that kind of, or that the queue's short enough. It's become a given, it's become something that's vital. It's expected, it's yeah. It's an expectation. Yeah. And it won't be a reason to shop there, but it will be a reason to reject. Yeah, it's the norm. It's the norm. Yeah, yeah. Are there any um, and any examples? Small ones would be great. Any purpose-driven, uh, great value in terms of great values, retailers or organisations that you're a fan of? Well, I'd certainly select some smaller ones. Brilliant. Please do. Um, well, one of your own clients, Deacon and Blue. Brilliant. Swimwear. Okay. Yeah. Um, Rosie creates. She's interesting actually because in her early stages. Uh, she was very much leading with the sustainability of her product. Right. And she talked to me about the, the reasons that women find her brand. And she realized that the focus was on transformation, making women feel good about, about swimming. And um, putting right this issue of women not feeling good enough about their bodies to continue to swim when they reach adulthood and to swim with their babies and their children as, as they have been. Um, so central to her proposition is this issue of um, transformation for the woman in how she feels about herself. Of course in the way she looks, but how she feels about herself is the most important aspect, um, even when most exposed in a swimming costume. The sustainability aspect is vital. It's a given for her. It's an absolute hygiene factor but it's not the main driver for customers to come to her. And get her uh, determining that and being clear about that, I know is very important for her um, and really resonates with her customers. You worked for Tesco. When, when was that? Was that when Tesco was kind of at the stage of <laughs> taking over not just Britain and Europe, but 
quite a chunk of the world, was it, was it I then? Worked, I worked for Tesco a really long time ago, which will age me. I will tell you when I worked for Tesco. I can't remember the date. In fact, I'll probably deny this. But to give you the era, I worked for Tesco just after C. Ian McLaurin had left. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, or was leaving. Um, actually, I worked for Tesco under Ian McLaurin's leadership, and they had only just given up the Greenshield stands. Right, okay. So I went to Tesco as a really young buyer, from Harvey Nichols to buy children's wear. So at Harvey Nichols, I bought a really broad range. I bought the whole of children's wear. I go into Tesco and they want me to buy baby wear. And right. it's a very narrow range, but obviously huge learning curve to go from buying this width of product, but this very narrow, I have to choose, I have to select the most compelling assortment of baby girls' dresses that people are going to buy across the country, not just in Knightsbridge, or yeah. not in Knightsbridge. So it was a massive um, learning curve for me about the real cost of goods, how you can create, what they wanted from me was the taste level of Harvey Nichols brought into Tesco. And what I learned was how, how, how to create, knowing that that was effectively my brief, written or unwritten, how to create something that's beautiful at a very affordable and accessible price. It was a fantastic learning curve. Me. What has it been like to be a female working through the retail sector, becoming a leader? How has that experience over the years been for you? I haven't, I haven't faced some of the um, issues as a female leader that have that do to do continue to prevail, but I have faced some of them. In the main, I now realise looking back, post-rationalising this, this is because I have not avoided those situations where I might have been discriminated against as a woman, but because I self-selected brands where I felt I could make a difference. And seeing things through that lens in terms of what stage is the business at, what does it need doing, what's my purpose, because this sense of I purpose, purpose, I think, is, yeah. is really... I, I don't think I'd really intellectual, you know, or sort of evaluated that in a conscious way until much later but I think fairly early on I had a perspective of where I added value and what type of value I was able to add as opposed to what the job was and I talked to lots of young people about what the difference between those things are your training to be a buyer or your head of buying or your head of marketing but what is it that you bring to the party not just what the head of marketing does but what is it that you do? What do people say about you when you're not in the room? Mm. And so I self-selected where I felt that I could make a difference based on what the business needed and what I could offer. Um, that was that that I now realise has avoided some of those hierarchical gender-related issues that were were definitely prevalent, but didn't affect me necessarily in quite the same way. But what I have I guess made it a bit of a mission, since, particularly since um, I've I left my last board role and, and set up my consultancy, is to make sure that a really strong part of the mix of what I offer is championing those young women, whether they are in roles and progressing through from senior management, middle management to senior management into board roles. I mentor women formally and informally on that basis, whether they're setting up their own businesses or growing their own businesses, um, or whatever their circumstances. I love to help guys as well, but it tends to be women who gravitate towards me because I have that lens that says, I'm aware of these um, contradictions and challenges, challenges that yeah. women face, and I'm very, very conscious of the way in which not only does it um, limit their potential, perhaps, or their choices, uh, their happiness and their well-being in terms of balance between life and work and children and all the rest of it, but actually it mitigates against the performance of businesses, our high street, our choices customers. So I see it very much in the round. I want to help them because I want to help, I want to help us to have great retail experiences and great brand experiences. I want us to have great re uh, brand experiences and the way in which we do that is by having really good diversity around our board tables and in our businesses. How do we change the status quo? 
I think, well, the evidence shows it's going to take a really long time yeah. because these things do take a really long it's time. cultural. They're deeply, deeply cultural. It's not a sort of all women think like this, all men think like that at all. It isn't all people of, you know, ethnic minorities think like this or other people think like that. It is highly, highly complex. But I cite, cite Sir Charlie Mayfield, who I interviewed um, about three years ago for the study that Elixir, the management consultancy, and Women in Retail collaborated on. And his view was very clear, and he stood by that and made choices um, aligned with the view that he stated, was that John Lewis, John Lewis Partners, would be in better shape as a result of having increased diversity in their decision-making, and that he had first-hand experience of uh, the different kinds of conversations that take place when you have a mix of people around the board table. The conversations might take longer, and they might in some instances be more challenging, but the, the, uh, the decisions that are made as a result of those are, are much more rounded and fulfilling, and that his vision was to have his customer represented in the broadest sense, not just from a gender perspective, throughout the, the, the John Lewis partnership. Uh, and not long after that, uh, Paula Nichols was appointed as CEO, and of mm. course since then Sharon White's been appointed as the Charlie Mayfield successor. Ultimately, therefore, I do believe it's about leadership. It is about things changing at the top. Things don't change at the top unless things change through the pipeline as well. And so, what my perspective is to chip away here and chip away here in my own small way um, and previously of course through through women in retail in sort of broader way through but actually I, in some ways I feel that I can do more yeah. as a as a sort of entrepreneurial cheerleader of those things yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so <laughs> yes it, it will take a long time we're, we're all we're all the product of the um, of the roots that we came from think you know we're all deeply aware of that and I, I had a really interesting example a few weeks ago I, I ran a, um, a panel session at the retail and e-commerce directors forum at the Belfry um, that's run by Richmond events annually and I spoke to Emma Doniger who is the editor she runs the content of the event um, quite a few months before the event was was due to go live and said look I've noticed you don't have anything on your agenda, or you haven't until now had anything on your agenda about di diversity. Would you be up for that? Or would you like to blend it in with a, um, an industry-based topic? Um, and we could sort of do it that way. Or not at all, also. Um, and I sort of made it clear that if she wanted to do something on diversity, it needed to be important to them. I didn't want to be the four o'clock slot before the drinks were, were served because you know, that's tokenism and there's no point in that. Mm. Um, so uh, the upshot was um, I engaged a, a group of women, um, all females, diverse in terms of their experience, uh, to collaborate with me on a, on a panel talking about uh, the state of retail, uh, the challenges, the future, all from their different perspectives. Um, we had female, we had Rosie, um, female founder from Deacon Blue, um, my long-standing colleague and friend, Leonie Foster from Don Elm, you know, obviously a very big business perspective. She herself had worked for Tesco before. Um, Vanessa Hodgson, who is the head of marketing for HSL, a family-run business. Mm. And then um, Alicia Lies, the founder of Bourgeois Bohème, a vegan shoe brand. So we, we had a nice mix of perspectives and in, they, they ran the session twice because they wanted to have um, small enough groups so that we could create and get, we were trying to create a conversation rather than talking at an audience. So we're, there were two groups of 30, they ran the session twice. And in the first session, I cited the fact that it was the obvious, that it was a female panel and the reasons for it, but I did it in quite a low key way. And, um, and the conversation ensued and we had a good discussion with the audience and they with us. The only people in the audience who spoke or raised a question were men in that first session. Wow, okay. 
probably about 80% of the audience was men, 20% women. Second session, similar proportions of men and women in the audience. I introduced the women slightly differently. I said pretty much the same things, but I said it in a more assertive way. Probably did my sort of, you know, we're doing it for these reasons and sort of emphasised with my hands and this is why it's important. I make no apology for it. Words to that effect, that, that sort of stuff. The upshot of that was the women, the minute I said, you know, please have a conversation, please um, join us, um, engage with us, say, ex express your views, the women came forward. Not one man engaged in that conversation other than one who expressed his opinion in the form of giving us advice. Now, I can see you're sort of reflecting on that, thinking, well, what do I think about that? What did I think about that? I thought, that's interesting. If I were to run these two sessions again, I would approach both of them differently. Yeah. I didn't know that at the time. I know that now. What I do know is we don't want to polarise responses from either gender in mm. order to get good results. We don't want to back men into a corner because they feel they can't have a point of view. And um, clearly the latter session provoked sensitivities in the men that made them defensive and unwilling to speak. Mm. The first session was more of a normalised situation in that the women would, would usually not speak. <laughs> um, so there's a different kind of engagement that we need to be conscious of to give everybody a platform in which they can have a voice. And these things don't happen by accident. They happen by design, Yeah, is my view. Yeah, It'll uh, yeah. be great the day that they happen naturally and they happen without having to facilitate these things, but I think we're a long way off from that. I'm just sort of wondering, every cloud maybe has a silver lining. Absolutely. And we were talking about you know making sure we're not issues focused but more solutions focused earlier on does it's a little bit of an assumption on my part because I haven't got the figures to hand but does the lack of um, female representation in big brands at board level create a wonderful opportunity from an entrepreneurial perspective for women to go actually there's a huge gap in X, Y or Z market I can start something up I can create something that's, it has huge potential. And Absolutely. are you seeing that in your role? Any any names that you want to talk about as part of that? Chris, I'm seeing it all the time. I'm yeah. seeing it all the time. So it's, it's, you think it's, a, a, it's becoming a bigger thing? It's becoming a bigger thing. I think that, you know, if we think about the sort of, I, I don't like the label millennial, but we'll use it because people understand what it means and then there's a generation that are coming behind them that are younger and similar sort of perspectives. They're brave and they don't necessarily feel that they need to have a, a, a job or certainly not a job for life. And there's a lot of entrepreneurial spirit out there that actually, if they can't see what they want in terms of the kind of work that they want or they've, or they've done something great, like a banking career for 10 years, it was one example of a very sort of um, very um, impressive um, managing sort of um, consultancy kind of roles but actually then they find they're not fulfilling yeah. and back to the purpose, purpose yeah. they want something that's fulfilling so very often what I find is that the driver is the fulfilment the spotting the gap is almost the secondary thing and that's why in so many instances they're getting it so right because they're starting from the place of what's going to be fulfilling and therefore what's my purpose as a founder? What's my per yeah. What am I giving back? What problem am I solving? So Joanna Dye, for example, Dye um, Tailoring, her very, very simple, straightforward story of I'm on an aeroplane yet again, I've been up at four yet again, I will be home at midnight again, and I've been in these clothes all day, and the waistband has been digging in all day. Right. Does it really have to be like that? Why can't my tailoring feel like, but not look like, feel like and perform like yoga wear? Why can't it? Now with my lens and my generational perspective, 
that would have made me think of comfy slacks in Marks and Spencers, <laughs> which sure as hell would have been a turn off for me. Yeah. But Joanna's not tied up in those kind of preconceptions. She's not held back by those sort of notions and goes and finds great fabric, goes to Premier Vision, goes and finds, says, I'm going to give up my 10 years at, um, I actually can't remember which, um, which bank she worked for, but, you know, very, um, very senior role. I'm going to find a way to do this. I'm going to give myself time to do this. I'm going to step out of my well-paid job. I'm going to go to London College of Fashion. I'm going to be humble about this just because I know the business world doesn't mean I know how to do this stuff. I've got an idea, but I really want to learn how I can make it happen. Understand pattern cutting, learn a new skill, go and work for Amelia Wickstead, um, who I understand happened to design her wedding dress, it must have been beautiful, um, and really you know, work on that shop floor and do the running and combine her clearly very impressive business experience like Rosie also has at, at Deacon Blue and um, Rachel uh, Navy and Gray. And, you know, so they're combining great sort of right and left hand brains to solve customer problems, but they're doing it from a place of heart and wanting a sense of purpose for themselves, for the people who work with them and for their customers. And boy, that, those trousers are comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> you have a pair. I have a pair. They don't look like anything that you can get in Marks there you and Spencer. Go. Right. So your message to women out there is, do you see a gap? Do you seek fulfilment? Not doing that is also fine. Yeah. You know, we all have choices. People of want People looking after your children and being at home for a time and not doing, not trying to juggle something else, not having some kind of very fashionable side hustle as well is also completely fine you know one of the things I learned was actually you know I felt I had to do everything I felt I had to keep on that treadmill and and another sort of um, learning and sense of opportunity that I've tried to convey to people when when it's appropriate for them is actually you do have choice there's always a choice mm. there's always a choice you don't have to try and do everything at once and in my experience you can have it all in that sort of rather um, old cliched way but it's unlikely you're going to be able to have it all at the same time and nor do you need to because that isn't route to fulfilment either excellent i think we started almost on fulfilment and leaving it on purpose i think that's a great place to finish thank you so much before we go where can we find you in terms of online um my website is um brandinspirationco.com yeah um, very happy to be emailed brilliant as well. you're on LinkedIn I'm on LinkedIn Twitter and, and not, not Twitter but not Twitter. okay I know you have a YouTube channel as well yes yeah okay brilliant thank you very much thank you a big thank you to Fiona for joining me I particularly enjoyed her insight on the woes and solutions for M&S why purpose is so important as the starting point for any commercial venture and her examples of smaller brands that are set to make big waves in the world of retail. Be sure to tune in as I'll be back soon with another interview. In the meantime, do subscribe to Beyond the Numbers on your preferred podcast app. You can get in touch with your feedback using the hashtag Beyond the Numbers and you can tweet me at ThompsonCST and at WellersSME. Beyond the Numbers is a Wellers production. Till next time, I'll leave you with a quote from the astronaut and second man to step on the moon, Buzz Aldrin. No dream is too high for those with their eyes in the sky.